This morning, we're looking at what divides and distracts. And the title, simply, of this passage that we've looked at is, Beware of what divides and distracts. Putting it another way, as they would say in the football training, keep your eye on the ball. Trainers often tell defenders and goalies to, to keep your eye on the ball. The goalie needs to keep his eye on the ball as it's coming in, because if he doesn't, if he's looking around, he has not enough time to rejudge where it's going to land, and he might not, he might not get it properly. He might fumble. A goal might happen. Or defenders, <clears throat> they're told not to watch the attacker who's coming towards them, but to keep their eye on the ball. If Cristiano Ronaldo is coming at you and he's he's stepping over the ball and you think he's going this way, he's going that way, you can end up. Just go one way or another, and then you just go straight ahead. And keep your eye on the ball, and you're much more likely to, to do a good job defending. As people often say when others are driving, keep your eye on the road. <laughs> you know, we have to keep our eye on the main thing in so many things in life. And it's the same, too, with respect to church. There's so many important issues, but yet sometimes we make them the ultimate issue the primary thing. And before we know it, we've ended up with things blown out of proportion and how do we get in this situation, we might think. First of all, Paul, he makes an appeal to them. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other, let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought, and purpose. <coughs> Paul actually in this letter, of all the letters that he uses where he talks about brothers, dear brothers and sisters, he uses that phrase, that word, a third of all his uses of it are in just this letter. He's emphasizing here that sense of unity. When Paul writes, dear brothers and sisters, to those in Corinth, this is actually a bit strange for them. This is actually a term that's more at home for the Jews. The Israelites were really one family of, of Abraham, brothers and sisters really in him, or distant cousins at least. But it's not a term, it's not a concept that the Romans were used to. But Paul uses it to show that in the church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And instead of being divided, he calls them to be of one mind. Literally, as one commentator writes it, Paul says, speak the same thing. Be perfectly united. The two ideas that there are, that they ought to, on the one hand, to be united, and on the other hand, to be perfect, those are what come across in, in the Greek words used there. When Paul was working as a tent maker, he used to repair tents. Uh, he did that to earn a living in Corinth while he was ministering to the church. And so today, when, when you might have a pastor who's got another job to support himself pastoring, people say, oh, he's doing tent making, uh, sort of referring to what Paul was doing back in Corinth. Paul would be repairing rips and intents 
and he would be repairing them back and making them complete, making them whole again. And that's the idea that he has in mind in those words that he is using. He gives us a, an appeal, but then he points to four divisions that are in the church. These have been well summarized by Chloe, who came and gave him an accurate and a fair description of some of the issues that were going on in the church. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Four groups in the church. They would come together at times, like for the, the Lord's table, but we don't know whether they came together all together for Sunday worship um, generally or whether they often had it in different house groups. They certainly seem to have met during the week or, or been focused in different house groups in the early church. But he calls for unity, but not in the sense that unity is the main thing. Unity can... is is not the idol that he seeks. He, he wants them to... He wants them to be united in Christ. Not united on a cause or, you know, some of them on, on this issue and others united on that. And let's just get behind one cause. And he doesn't call them to, to, to support a single issue campaign like a lot of people would campaign through for the environment or, or different things today. He wants them to have one mind as they serve Christ. Unity doesn't mean everybody thinking the same. It doesn't mean we have to be clones of each other. It doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean there's only one view on this. But it means that even if there are different views on something, that those things don't split people in the church. I know of a church where the believers were working through some matters quite well. They made a lot of progress. They had a lot of things to sort out. They came from different backgrounds theologically. But one person got in and saw the opportunity to, to take one of these theological issues and use it as a, as a rallying call to one group within the church, within the fellowship, to center around him and he ended up splitting the church. I know of another situation where a tiny matter was blown up out of all proportion and the pastor, people went against the pastor, some of the elders, to the point where in the end the division and disharmony was so great and there wasn't a sufficiently mature approach to dealing with these things that the pastor had to leave the church and some left with them. We need to be careful. Division can come in through godly desires, godly issues just overemphasized, not just through divisive people. In Corinth, there were the four groups. First, there were those who followed Paul and Paul had planted the church there he was, in a sense, the father of, of the faith to those in the church. But later, Apollos had ministered there and helped many grow in their faith too. He had been helped by Priscilla and Aquila to come to a better understanding of the faith, and he was 
such a skill of being able to speak so well. And he'd been brought up in Alexandria, a very influential and educated place, the most scholarly place in the whole, around the whole of the Mediterranean at that time and for some time beforehand. And Peter seems to have had an influence, not necessarily by having been there, but he seems to have been the, the, the figurehead of sort of a Jewish approach where you've you got to focus on the laws of Moses, you've got to celebrate the Jewish culture and background. Certainly Paul had a run-in with him, as we read of in Galatians, where Peter went really overboard and got distracted and waylaid and had to be corrected. So you get Paul, Apollos and Peter. When it comes to Paul and then Apollos, it's, you know, the Lord gives different gifts, not just within a church to different people at one point in time, but he also gives different gifts throughout the history of a church. One person may be perfectly gifted to plant a church and yet another may be better gifted to help it move on. Paul planted, Apollos watered. But sometimes people can see, instead of seeing the blessings of different people that the Lord has blessed them by, some people can say, well, the, the new pastor isn't as good as the old one. In these ways, looking at what the old pastor was good at. And others will say, well, now that we've got the new pastor, we see that the old pastor wasn't as good in other ways as the new pastor is. And instead of thanking God for both and what they brought to the church, people can actually use the differences to cause division. Some were saying, we prefer the old pastor, Paul. Others saying, we prefer the new pastor, Apollos. But they shouldn't have been divided. They shouldn't have set one against the other. In the 1700s in England, George Whitfield was, some would say, the leader of the Evangelical Awakening. He and Wesley and a few others were, were very prominent in, in this evangelical awakening, which brought England, which was spiritually dark around 1700, very, very dark. They'd had the Reformation, um, but still it hadn't really impacted the country that much. But when Whitfield went to America to preach, he entrusted the movement to John Wesley. But Wesley had a different view on predestination and holiness or Christian perfectionism in this life. And when Whitfield returned, he found that there was division. And many people who were really supportive of him beforehand, who'd been previously loyal to, to him and the movement, they had no time for him. They wouldn't even talk to him, some of them. Both Whitfield and Wesley, they, they founded the Methodist movement, a revival movement within the Church of England, which the Church of England didn't really want to, to follow the revival that was happening. And so sometimes, sometimes if people will not warm to the Lord, 
you're forced to actually go and separate from them. And that's what happened uh, within the Anglican Church in England. Methodism came in Dublin. The same thing happened with the Anglican Church, the Church of Ireland, and the Brethren were formed as a result of that, and that spread far and wide since then. Although Whitfield, though, had been impetuous against Wesley as a result of the division between them, he wrote to Wesley in October 1741. He wrote, May God remove all obstacles that now prevent our union. May all disputing cease, and each of us talk of nothing but Jesus and him crucified. This is my resolution, and without dissimulation, I find I love you as much as ever, and pray God, if it be his blessed will, that we may all be united together. Well, their followers never seem to follow that um, frame of mind. And Wesleyism is still a very strong movement within evangelicalism, even today. But when Whitfield died, Wesley preached at his funeral. And one day after his funeral, Wesley was timidly approached, as one writer writes, by one of the, the godly band of Christian sisters who had been brought under his influence and who loved both Whitfield and himself. Dear Mr. Wesley, may I ask you a question? Yes, of course, madam, by all means. But, dear Mr. Wesley, I'm very much afraid what the answer might be. Well, madam, let me hear your question and then you will know my reply. Just sounds like a scene from Pride and Prejudice or, or something. At last, after not a little hesitation, the inquirer tremblingly asked, Dear Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? Some people think that others who don't have the same theological views, and they're not even going to heaven. A lengthy pause followed, after which John Wesley replied with great seriousness, No, madam. His inquirer at once exclaimed, Ah, I was afraid you would say so. To which John Wesley added, with intense earnestness, Don't misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory, and will stand so near to the throne, that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. And that's a powerful statement of how even if we disagree with people on certain things, we don't have to conclude, well, we're more righteous than them. You know, often they're far more holy and right, more sanctified than us. Even if somebody happens to be more correct on a theological issue, that doesn't mean they're more sanctified. Another division between evangelicals, between Bible-based Christians, is the topic of baptism. Baptists don't ba baptize babies, just older children and adults upon profession of faith. That's how we would do it. But Presbyterians baptize babies, not christening them, not making them Christians by the act of pouring water and saying some words over them. 
but as sort of a sign of God's promises to families as a modern alternative of circumcision in the Old Testament. For the life of me, I can't see where this is in the Bible. You know, I'm a Baptist through and through, and I just am baffled by how they can see it in the New Testament. But they claim to see it, and I respect that. I personally think that really, at the Reformation, they'd be baptizing babies, and sometimes you just keep on doing the same thing, but you give it a different justification, a different reason. I don't know, maybe that's too disingenuous to them. But I know many people who are godly people who really wholeheartedly believe this. I differ, as many do, but we respect them. And we we have some of them preach here at times. And that doesn't separate us. In fact, in the church where we were in London before we came over here, there were both Baptists and Presbyterian-minded folk. In fact, all the deacons were Baptists, and half the elders, whereas the minister and another elder, and the constitution of the church was, they allowed baptism of babies. And we often had some good conversations with people who were, you know, disagreed, but we never fell out over it. You know, it was just a topic that we talked about occasionally. It wasn't something that we felt separated us. If somebody want, you came to faith and wanted to be baptized by full immersion in a Baptist baptistry, one of the Baptist elders would be with the back end of the church and the other elders would baptize them in a nearby Baptist church. And if somebody wanted their, their baby baptized, that would just happen in an ordinary Sunday service. And it wasn't a division. What we have in common is far more important. The primary thing we have in common, if we are Christ, is far more important than secondary things, which well, we'll have to wait for Christ to actually tell us who's right. <laughs> you know, we might be wrong, they might be right. We might be right, they might be wrong. We'll have to see. Differences don't have to become divisions. We can be united in Christ, united in the higher purpose of the cause of the gospel and worshipping God, even if we have differences on secondary matters. This tendency to divide and form a new church or a new denomination is sometimes justified, as we saw with Methodism and Brethren, when there was no other option. But far too often, there is another option that of settling differences and making more effort to be united. But we don't have to be united in a denominational or a structural or an organizational way to have unity in Christ. We can have different churches worshiping together, united in, in the cause of the gospel, praying together. Some people look at Unity has to be all under one organization. But that's organizational unity. That's denominational unity. That's not necessarily the unity that we have in Christ. We can be in different organizations, different denominations, different churches. But we mustn't have a, a heart 
that our lives, that encourages division and separation. The division in Corinth wasn't just between Paul and Apollos. Some also followed Peter. As I said, he had a, a reputation of having joined the, the, the Judaizers, the, those who wanted to go back to a more Jewish way of worship, which by that time had been disestablished. It was no longer the way for the New Testament church. They were legalistic, saying that people had to follow the laws of Moses. Today we have the equivalent in many different things. You have to wear a certain dress code to come to church. You have to, in the past, you weren't really allowed in church. If you were a smoker, if you drank, or if you even went to the movies or dances. I mean, there's, there's a lot of dancing which is really not very godly. But there's much that is. It's just good fun. Irish dancing, lots of different dancing. Some movies are really challenging and can, can really tell a good, uplifting story. And yet there's a, lot of, there's a lot of trash out there as well that really isn't appropriate for us to, to be watching. But these things are not meant to be tests of whether you're, you're a Christian or whether you're accepted in church or not. Sadly, in the United States today, there's some churches are predominantly Republican and others Democrat. Politics becomes a test, a, a dividing thing between people. These ought not to be the case, especially legalism. You have to do this, you have to do that. And some preachers, they say, well, those who followed Paul, they were a bit divisive. Those who followed Apollos, they were a bit divisive. Those who followed Peter, they were mistaken. But those who followed just Christ, well, they were the worst of the lot. <laughs> because they were the super spiritual group. We will, we're better than all of you. We're just us and Jesus. We actually don't need any leaders. We don't need Apollos. We don't need Paul. We don't need Peter. We don't even need church. We just do it on our own. It's just me and Jesus. That type of approach. They rejected spiritual leadership that had been given to the leaders of the church. They were their own boss spiritually. They choose who they would listen to or what ministries they engaged with. They were their own boss, self-sufficient. But the thing is, Christ didn't die just for me or for individuals, or, or you're anybody. He, he, he died to bring his people, to bring the church, to bring all who will trust in him into glory. On that day, there will not be a collection of individuals just happening to be in heaven. There will be the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God. And in that sense, the church means not just a New Testament church, but the, the, the body of all believers throughout all time, Old Testament as well, the universal church. He has given the local church as the means by which he pastors and spreads the gospel and encourages. He gives leadership. He gives people with different gifts. And pastors are, are not 
of higher esteem than others. We're all equally equal before the Lord. But we need the church. It is his body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need for you or, or whatever. We all need each other. And these problems, these divisions don't go away too easily. Sometimes they might go underground for a while, but then they resurface. And a church leader, Clement, wrote about the church in Corinth 50 years later. He specifically mentions the Paul group, the Apollos group, and the Peter group. They were still there. Today, the, the cult of the celebrity pastor, where megachurches grow around a certain pastor or, or ministry or one powerful preacher, we have the same problem. It might not be within a certain church, but in a city you've got some people will gravitate to this church and others will gravitate to that and so on. We need to be united, even across church boundaries, especially in a local geographical context. If a church, if an evangelical church, a Bible-based church, doesn't really know of what's going on in the, the church, which is 100 yards down the road or half a mile away, there's something seriously wrong. And often it's where churches are praying together and supporting one another and recognizing one another in a local area that the Lord comes and blesses them in a powerful way. Sin, sin gets in in very subtle ways. Even apparently theological or Christian issues. But we can, we can approach things in a wrong way and a good issue can become a problem issue. Yet, like Paul in his letter, we need to address these matters appropriately, not dismissing them out of hand. And he does that throughout the rest of the letter. He addresses things and tries to set things right and put Christ and the work of the cross above all else. That's the, that's the lens by, by which he views and deals with all these things. In doing so, he asks... He has three absurdities that he says. He says, has Christ been divided into factions? No. Was I, Paul, crucified for you? No. Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. We're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that his followers will be one. And some people interpret that as we've got to be one organization or under one umbrella. But that's organizational unity. Really, there's a good argument for saying that the oneness that he was talking about was one in Christ. Christ wasn't divided and we shouldn't be divided. Paul wasn't crucified. The pastor, a celebrity pastor, a famous pastor none of a, nobody has died on the cross other than Christ so Christ is who we look to we shouldn't elevate anybody we shouldn't treat them as our spiritual father to the distraction of of God and Jesus we ought to be very careful if 
if somebody has a ministry that's actually titled after their name, the such and such ministry or whatever. Some people think that we've called our church after somebody. <laughs> I've even had people ring up asking, can I speak to Colin Glenn, please? <laughs> but <laughs> if we had, there would be something wrong. You know, you don't, have, Alistair Campbell didn't say, this is the Alistair Campbell Baptist Church. It was Finney Baptist Church. And so on. you don't, there's something wrong when somebody has their name that high up in a ministry. There's something concerning, at least. Christ ought to be the center. Christ ought to be the focus. Even if people become very famous and well-known through their ministry, they ought to be even more careful. They ought to have more people guarding them, good advisors. Because some, the famous went to their heads and they've fallen from grace, sometimes spectacularly. And that really doesn't just bring disrepute to what they've done to the name of Christ. It actually harms and there's, there's people left in the wake of that are questioning their own faith or they're really pastorally impacted in a powerful and a terrible way. Christ ought to be the focus. And the gospel of Christ Jesus should take center stage. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Paul says at the start of the next chapter that he didn't come to them with lofty speech or worldly wisdom. He was certainly capable of that, I would argue. When he spoke at Mars Hill in Athens in Acts chapter 17, you can see he was able to engage with, with the atheists, with the, with people who supported other religions, with the non-Christians and non-Jews in a way which engaged with their own culture. He was able to, to use rhetorical norms, the, the, the eloquent ways of speech. He could do it, but he chose not to emphasize that. If you look at some of his letters, you'll see Paul can be very, very powerful in what he says. But he didn't flaunt that like a lot of people would have done. He was aware, even afraid of his own weaknesses. And as he says, the start of the next chapter, even coming to them at trembling at times, at least I would say inside. Not everyone who stands at a pulpit and looks confident is actually as confident as they might seem. And I think that's what Paul was saying, that he wasn't self-confident. He was more self-aware of how his failings might negatively impact his ministry. But he had confidence in the word of God and he had confidence in the cross of Christ and the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit to impress the truths about Christ on the hearts of his listeners. The power in his preaching wasn't that he was able to, to really give a good speech. It's not like, you know, the best of speakers today, you see them giving TED Talks. I think that they spoke powerfully. That was really wonderful. That was really impressive. They can really get a message across. 
And the equivalent was very famous at, at Corinth as well. They had competitions to see who could give the best speech. But that's not what Paul was relying on. He was relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to use his words to impress the truths about Christ on the hearts of his listeners. I remember hearing somebody, I think, I'm terrible with names, I think it was Jonathan Edwards they were, they were talking about. And unlike many preachers who could really engage with those who they were listening to and really become vibrant in the, in the pulpit, this preacher just read his prepared sermon. And there was, you, you would have fallen asleep naturally, but the power of the Holy Spirit engaged people. I think that's maybe a bit of an extreme I think it's, we need to be more engaging than just reading something um, that plainly. But it emphasizes the point that when the Holy Spirit is at work, when the Holy Spirit takes the words that somebody has and uses them powerfully, the power is not the preachers, but the power is in the Spirit. The power is in the cross. When he says that, He just preached that Christ died on the cross. That doesn't mean that he just preached the same formula. Christ died on the cross each week. There are various topics that are related to Christ dying on the cross. In fact, there's hardly any topic that, in terms of where we stand with God, is not affected by Christ dying on the cross. So many things flow from that or lead to that. The point is, his preaching was cross-centered. The preaching, his preaching was gospel-centered, it was grace-centered. Even if he was preaching on different topics, there was always a way in which they came back to the cross. If a preacher distracts from the gospel by telling too many jokes, you think, well, they're not trying to lead people to Christ. They're trying to get attention like a stand-up comedian. They want the applause and the, themselves. There's something wrong there. And if a preacher is trying to burden people with rules so people feel under his authority, there's something very wrong there as well. Instead, when we're having personal evangelism, talking to people about the Lord, whether somebody's in the pulpit preaching or writing or putting a blog on the, on the internet, we ought to resist the temptation to give people the impression about something impressive about us. We have to leave things out that we would love to say that might distract them from Christ and make them remember something about us. We ought to make Christ the focus. We ought to become, in a sense, transparent that they don't remember us, they remember Christ. As John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. So we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to keep the church's eyes on Jesus. We have to celebrate our unity and guard our unity and guard against division. That doesn't mean we don't discuss things or have differences of opinion. But differences 
don't necessarily have to mean divisions. But in all things, Christ has to have the preeminence. Let's just finish with some of Paul's words to the Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, or the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything, let him be preeminent. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul, the struggles of the church at Corinth that we can learn from. We thank you for the witness of godly men and women. We thank you, Lord, for, for leading and guiding us by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to have unity in Christ between each other, between our church and other churches who put Christ first. Lord, help us to have that unity in the Spirit. Help us to have unity in the body of Christ. Lord, forgive us our sins. Lord, help us to, to be more united. Help us to, to bridge divisions that have maybe been there in the past. Help us to be reconcilers like you were the reconciler, the great reconciler between yourself and us through the cross. Help us to be reconciled through the cross too. Help us to be bridge builders rather than those who divide. And may we do it all in your name and to your glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.